Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the theater. Many people ask me if I believe in ghosts, but such a complex question doesn't deserve a simplistic answer. What is inspiration if not a kind of demon or spirit possessing us? Perhaps you don't believe in such things, but I can prove the existence of ghosts in this very moment though it will take your participation. So, if you'd oblige me. Maybe you're walking, sitting in a car, or alone at home. Wherever you are, I'd like you to get comfortable, and if possible, close your eyes as you consider these words. What is an idea? How do you conjure one precisely? How is it that you move your finger, that you breathe, the answer is, of course, that we don't think about these things, these mechanisms. And thoughts are no different. They often arrive outside of our volition. I'm going to ask you to do something, but before this, I'd like you to keep your mind completely still. Attempt to quiet your thoughts. Are you ready? All right. Now think of a color. Visualize it. Decide on just one. A few might have popped into your head, but you decided on one, didn't you? What was it that made you decide that color? You might be tempted to say it was you. After all, who else has control over your thoughts? What a preposterous question. And yet, just what exactly made the thought pop into your head? Or this next one? Was that also you? I'm of the opinion that some thoughts some passions and inclinations, if not all of them, are simply beyond us. Bread of a subconscious beneath our control. A ghost, if you will, of all the experiences of our past selves culminating into how we act and think in this very next moment. And if you do think, perhaps, you have complete control over your mind, I'd ask you to please Whatever you are doing right now, do not imagine an elephant. And yet, of course, that elephant appears in both our minds. By the mere sounding of the word, we are compelled to understand, visualize, and therefore summon this thought into existence. Even your understanding of the English language is not controlled, is it? You couldn't compel yourself to stop interpreting these sounds into thoughts, could you? Where's the volition in that? So what are ideas, after all, if not ghosts? Some people are born into this world without a single malicious thought in their mind. Others, more commonly, are far more complex. A consistent inner battle of angels and demons. Then, there are those whose natures predispose them to the most abhorrent, despicable behavior. And in our attempt to understand these individuals, sometimes we just give up, preferring instead to brand them as inhuman, as animals, mere beasts. My name is Harlequin Grimm. 
and you are listening to the stories of monsters whose voices are lost in history. And this is Mania. Gilles Garnier led a life of seclusion in 1571. He survived outside the town of Dole, in the French Comte province of France. I say survived because Gilles wasn't the best hunter. Despite being mentally well-equipped for a life of isolation, physically he wasn't cut out for the part, meaning his was not a thriving existence. Given his odd personality, being alone suited him well, especially during these times when paranoia of witchcraft was rampant, and in small towns just like the one he lived on, the outskirts of, drama and bitterness could easily turn into allegations, and allegations into death sentences on account of mere suspicion. Don't like the way your neighbor Delma plants her crops a little too close to your side of the fence? Well, I heard Delma speaks to the devil at night, and next thing you know, you have all of Delma's side of the fence to plant your crops because, well, Delma got burnt at the stake because some children corroborated your story. Now, it wasn't as easy as that, but the peak of European witch trials was between the year 1560 and 1630, where an estimated 50,000 were burned at the stake, with 80% of them being women. Suffice it to say, now was not a safe time to be irritating your fellow townspeople or saying anything untoward about Christian doctrine. But how does all this get mixed into Gilles' life? He was somewhat immune to town politics simply by living apart from everyone else. That is, until he met Ella. Like him, Ella felt uneasy around the townspeople, especially now that talk of occult magic was infecting the community. People were restless, always suspecting, looking to blame bad luck on some magician or witch in the community who perhaps didn't even exist. It wasn't long after that that Ella and Gilles were married, and she moved in with him. They say that the first year of marriage is the most difficult, and for this couple the axiom couldn't be more true. Ella didn't realize the extreme extent of Gilles' subsistence living. The man could hardly feed himself adequately. How could he ever expect to provide for an extra stomach? But it was the late winter of 1571 now, and for better or worse, Gilles' effort at hunting were all the couple could rely on to survive. They were surrounded by snowfall in that cramped cottage. That pervasive, all-consuming whiteness. At nights, their brief conversations were dampened by the deafening silence that snow brings, making the world feel smaller, quieter. It wasn't long before a kind of low madness set in between the two of them. For Gilles, it was the guilt of having brought someone else into a life he could barely sustain alone. And for Ella, it was second-guessing why she had joined him at all, in a life where success meant just getting by. They survived that winter, but just barely. Many nights were spent sleepless on account of empty stomachs, and in that deep darkness of the forest surrounding them, 
the shadows of nightmares rose to torment them. The tree branches whispered, the winds howled and whistled. Gilles spoke frequently of a recurring nightmare, of tree roots growing through the cottage walls, stretching over and through his skin, digging into him. Then the winds would rattle, rattle the whole home while he screamed. Ella asleep and unaware all the while. The door would be broken down, and in would lumber a hideous creature, not quite man and not quite wolf, rather a combination of the two. When energy permitted, Ella would return to town to trade labor for goods they couldn't otherwise acquire. In the autumn of that next year, 1572, Gilles' nightmares began to make sense. There was talk of witchcraft in the village again, but not just any kind of witchcraft. Lycanthropy. Just as Ella brought back goods from town, she also brought back with her the stories of creatures prowling the forest at night. To the villagers, it was a werewolf at the boundary of their home, or as the French would say, Lugaru. But for Gilles and Ella, the rumors meant the danger was closer to them than anyone else. Gilles' nightmares became more frequent. Sometimes it was Ella who was eaten. Sometimes he was the monster. In his waking reality, when he went out to hunt, the talk of town, the images in his dreams, they followed his footsteps. Every stray arrow, every extra minute spent outside of his home, all he could imagine was another opportunity to fall prey to one of these creatures. Then, one late afternoon, when the autumn's winds were blowing through the trees, he saw something odd in the forest. A silhouette, nearly translucent, amorphous. Though he couldn't quite make out the features of the figure's face, he had the sense that it was beckoning him further. Gilles approached the spirit. Perhaps God had not forgotten him after all, he thought. In fact, he was certain. It was some divine intervention to alleviate his life's suffering. The spirit offered him a salve. It promised that it would amplify his abilities as a hunter, that his long hours of futile traps and missed arrows were over. Gilles looked around uneasily. Was this considered witchcraft? The hunter asked how, how it would help his abilities. But before his question could be answered, the spirit dissipated in a ray of sunlight breaking through the overcast sky. Now alone, Gilles saw the glistening of a silver sap oozing from a tree the spirit was standing beside. With his food stores thinning and yet another winter nearing, he rubbed the salve into his skin, and there, in the glade, the hunter felt suddenly overcome by drowsiness, laying down to rest in a place where, just moments before, he felt so fearful of a fatal threat. When he awoke, he found himself in the bed of his own home, with Ella 
stirring a pot of dinner over the fireplace. And for once, the hunter didn't awaken with hunger pains. And in the barrel beside the fire, instead of emptiness, there were chunks of meat wrapped in cloth and salt, being preserved for the harsh months ahead. Gilles looked into the large, dark eyes of Ella, placid, missing that low panic of a looming starvation. Tenderly, she took the hunter's hand in her own, kissing it. You are a good man, she said. Those words were to him like the first spring days, melting February's frost. He thought of the spirit, the salve, and the period of amnesia between then and now. And he grinned in return. Later that week, Oliver turned from town with horrid news. The body of a ten-year-old girl had been found in a vineyard, her body ravaged by a beast. But the townspeople suspected a werewolf was the cause, and were searching without end to find the culprit. They said they'd seen nothing like it, that flesh had been ripped from her arms and thighs, her carcass nearly unrecognizable. Gilles tore off a strip of cured meat and bit into it, his gaze lost in the fire. What terror, he mumbled. Will you go hunting soon? his wife asked. You shouldn't. It's not safe anymore. It was only days before when such a warning would chill the blood of Gilles Garnier. But today, on a full stomach, and with the memory of the spirit close to his mind, he felt confident, protected even, by that entity which appeared to him. When he returned that evening, he did so with aching limbs but empty hands. Once again, his attempts had failed, but Ella was relieved to see him alive at all. The town had reported another attack. They had recovered a young girl's body before the wolf had finished her off. She was bedridden in that very moment, trying to heal from wounds that she would never recover from. Wounds that would infect and take her young life. Is it horrible to think, Ella began, that I'm glad it wasn't you? Gilles remembered the doe he had been stalking that very morning, and just how narrowly his arrow had missed her heart. He had wounded the poor creature, but only just. Like the girl, the doe had undoubtedly run off, limping back to the shelter of its family, curled up in the snow, to be feasted on by the elements. Maybe, he thought. This was a kind of sacrifice to the spirit which had appeared to him. No, no, of course not, he murmured in reply. The hunter searched for a pattern, trying to discern whatever enchantment the spirit had bestowed upon him. Some days he hunted as he always had, and others he awoke from a deep sleep to find that the work had been done for him, with no recollection of having returned home at all. All the while, more reports came from the village. The victims were always children, always. The sightings never far different. A gigantic, hulking mass with human attributes, claws, and the tendency to switch between walking on four and two limbs. It would tear into the children while they screamed and thrashed, never killing before devouring. 
The thought alone was enough to make Gilles shudder, though he never felt in fear of the creature, not ever since the spirit had appeared to him. And moreover, he and his wife never went hungry for very long anymore. But the nightmares, those never left. Instead, they only became more real, more detailed. Dreams so realistic they felt uncanny. Have you ever woken up in a dream before? Nearly certain it's as tangible as reality. It was hard for Gilles to realize it. Just as it's difficult for any dreamer to wake up and realize that they are dwelling in a fantasy in their mind. Only his mind wasn't lost in a fantasy, but protecting itself from a nightmarish reality. A reality too horrid for anyone to endure with sanity. Gilles stirred slowly awakening to the rich smell of iron. It flooded his senses, the sickly, wet slapping of blood against snow, and the steaming of exposed innards in the frosted night air. Though his hands weren't claws, they ripped into the child's flesh all the same, and though he wasn't sprouting fur, he was laden with the skins of animals he'd killed before, dozens of pelts bundled up to warm him against the wintry night, and though he wasn't a beast, he acted like one, devouring with relish right there in the open field at the edges of the town, after having dragged a child who drifted a little too far, while being, like him, too alone for their own good. And there, in that moment, was the shattering of his delusion the fiction he'd spun, unraveling before him. Yet he couldn't stop himself from satisfying that deep, primal hunger. Then, as he had done before, he tore off chunks to take home to his wife. And as was long since habit, he washed the blood away from his body in a nearby river before returning. That was when he began to remember all of it, the boy in the vineyard first, and next to that doe he'd shot, not really a doe at all, but a girl he'd attacked before being witnessed and scared off, and the others he attacked, all the same, the gory memories resurfacing in one hideous epiphany. On January 18th, 1574, Gilles Garnier was escorted to a tall stake buried into the ground, surrounded by tinder and the murderous stares of the town's people whose politics, drama, and suspicion so drove him to a life of seclusion, a life of starvation, of fighting alone against the harsh forces of nature until, one day, he decided to become a part of the very thing he fought so feebly against. Would he have done it? Murdered, devoured, sank his teeth into those children, were it not for his wife, an innocent life depending on his failing capabilities as a hunter. It wasn't a question he could answer in that moment, 
trading gazes with the dozens of faces about to watch him burn alive. But he supposed the sentence fit the crime, to be devoured alive by the biting jaws of fire, just as he'd ripped the life from those children with his own jaws. When asked for his final words, Gilles Gagné, the French Lugaru, unclenched his jaw and said, I am only human. Thank you for joining me for another story in the Grim Theater. But before we continue, I must announce that this show is brought to you by its listeners. By you. Occasionally, I use sponsors or advertisements to help fund this show, but honestly, at this point, uh, to me at least, it is far preferable to keep pushing instead for more listener support directly. The patrons who support Mania are all fantastic, and it truly leaves a bad taste in my mouth in building up this community to be more successful, only to subject the growing listenership to ads for products I don't necessarily believe in. Um, However, if I do stumble upon ones I do believe in. I would have no qualms with bringing them here. But, as it currently stands, we have 17 patrons. I would be so, so thrilled to hit 20 by the end of this November 2020. This week we have a special event to encourage that, a limited edition art print by Astrid Grimm, done especially for the show. It will be sent out automatically to all of Mania's patrons who have been supporting us under the Acolyte tier or higher. So, to all our supporters, expect a little surprise in the next week or so. And for a short period of time, if you join our Patreon community with a subscription of $10 or higher, you will also receive the limited print along with all of the other rewards for that tier. You are welcome to head on over to my Instagram or Twitter under the handle HarlequinGrim to see what the print looks like. And if you need help finding the link to Patreon, feel free to reach out to me. Otherwise, it is at patreon.com forward slash harlequingrim. As far as we know, Gilles was entirely aware that he was hunting and devouring children, and specifically children. He never was tempted to hunt fully grown men or women. However, according to his testimony, it was a spirit, indeed, which gave him this ability the power to turn into a wolf. But in my rewriting of his story, it made more sense to create this veil, a delusion that Gilles had spun for himself so that he could live with what he did, ignoring the possibility entirely that he was actually transforming into a wolf. And yet this goes against the sightings of the townspeople. Sometimes they reported a man, other times a wolf, sometimes a combination of the two. But imagining Gilles as this antisocial, cowardly, probably poorly kept middle-aged man, one can imagine how, at dusk or late at night, the silhouette of a hunter covered in fur pelts might give the illusion of a hulking beast. It almost sounds probable, doesn't it? After all, if we saw something crouched on all fours, digging its teeth into an innocent child, our minds would instinctively think that the predator wouldn't be human at all. And isn't that the point of this story in the first place? Drawing the line at actions which separate human from monster? conscience from bestial instinct, and then the shocking reality that, somehow, these two natures coexist, and sometimes, the devils of our worst natures take over entirely. In truth, the brutality of the story is far worse than what I depicted. Gilles didn't wake up from a stupor, or neatly trim cuts of meat so as to deceive his wife into thinking they were from an animal. 
On two occasions, he brought home a whole limb, each time being the leg of a child <laughs> to his wife. And as far as the recounts go, his wife, who by the way didn't have a name for the sources I read, I made that up, uh, she didn't seem to mind. Or perhaps she was too frightened and hungry to protest. I mean, your husband just brought home a whole cut of a child leg. How could you resist? But just as the story went, Gilles had several failed attacks. There multiple times he was interrupted by passersby, causing him to scamper off back to the woods which so created him. On the whole, it was confirmed that he killed four children, each time eating a substantial amount of flesh, particularly around the thigh and the bicep, and sometimes right there in the spot where he killed them. Still, we are left with uncertainties. The Lu Guru could have killed several more, as he always picked lonesome children who wandered just a little too far from home. Now where does that leave us exactly? With reality and fiction being both so equally strange and unbelievable. Well, within every person is a beast. Sometimes, this creature inspires us to do wonderful things. To run farther, to climb higher, or express love in its purest, most primal form. But other times, its strongest, most basic will becomes the most sinister and unfeeling. The instinct that is to just survive. It is always a privilege to have such wonderful guests listening to these stories. For tonight, as we blow out the candles and close shut another story, we ruminate on the pluralistic instincts in ourselves, and just how we might go about taming one, or setting another loose. Just be careful that it is not you who one day goes bump in the night. This has been Harlequin Grimm, and as always friends, the theater is ever open to you.